In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'd like to read those portions of scripture included in our small catechism, the table of duties on civil government and its justice, which we did not hear. That was listed for the, the duties for the civil government is what we just heard, the first part of Romans 13 that we just heard. And we begin with our duty as subjects by hearing again those words of Jesus. Render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. We also hear again the rest of Romans 13, and, and also these words from 1 Timothy 2. I exhort, therefore, that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Also from Titus 3, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. And finally from 1 Peter 2, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. Dear brothers and sisters, in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus. Amen. And so we need it because we don't get it from those who rule over us. We get it from Christ our King. It's almost disappointing otherwise to hear these words, isn't it? Most of the table of duties, it's one of the longer sections, focuses on what you owe to the government. And we know, we know these words, we've heard them, and we're law-abiding citizens. We fear God. We respect the authority which God has commanded on earth, by which he maintains peace among us. We are freedom-loving Americans. We don't like our lives to be run, but we're not anarchists. We honor government as a necessary institution of God. Not only does the government, even in the worst of times that any of us has seen, no matter how corrupt it's been, we're getting it. Nonetheless, continue to reward much good and still nonetheless punish much evil. And through these, protect us from all sorts of disaster that could come upon us. Not only do we recognize this, but we acknowledge that it is much harder to build up than to tear down. We recognize holes in the roof and seek to patch them. We see a weakened foundation due to water leakage or, or termites. And notwithstanding the fact that, yeah, obviously, things were better before these termites or leaks. Yet we also acknowledge that the issue is, is, is better to be patched up and sealed than for the house to be torn down. An old house is better than no house. We live in the United States of America, and we are tremendously blessed to have seen functional and by and large equitable and just governance from the national to the local level. We're safe here. We, we outsource even our wars. 
And praise God that we are doing as well even now. Martin Luther says in the large catechism that his nation's coat of arms and coins should have a loaf of bread on them to indicate that the government of a nation is more than just a power of arms and political might. Government is a gift from God whereby he feeds us and provides the conditions for us to live in peace and prosperity. Benjamin Franklin proposed the turkey as our national bird. Instead, we got the North American version of the Roman eagle. It is truly lamentable. It is. Franklin, a wise heathen, knew what Luther taught better than most. Eagles are awesome. But rather than an awesome country, we want a safe and happy and pious country. Isn't that what we want for our homes? We pray for our rulers in order to live a quiet and peaceable life. A nation's greatness isn't found in how well it can intimidate weaker nations or extend its glory by might of arms or political intrigue. No, but by how well it can provide for its own citizens. The lifestyle to be self-sufficient and honorable and whereby they might also be encouraged to thank God for the many blessings he has bestowed. And this is done by our rulers when they properly execute justice, punish evil, and reward good, so that good homes might prosper and the gospel may have free course. Luther writes, For though we have received from God all good things in abundance, we are not able to retain any of them or use them in security and happiness if he did not give us a permanent and peaceful government. For where there are dissension, strife, and war, there the daily bread is already taken away. Now, if this is true in order to retain our daily bread, how true it is, is it also that good government is needful for us to publicly hallow God's name to hear his word, to confess it. Thank God, as bad as it is right now, that we can, without fear of punishment, be Christians. All civil authority stems from the authority which God has given to fathers and mothers. We'll consider what parents owe their children and what children owe their parents in two weeks. After I, by God's grace, will have a new little one at home whom I'll have to discipline and train in the fear and nurture of the Lord. The home is paramount to our lives, especially as it fosters both the obedience of faith toward God and obedience toward all others who have authority as well. Therefore, in the nation, no less than in the home, the first commandment with a promise applies to those who owe honor where honor is due. Do you want to be unafraid? Then do what is right, says St. Paul. In regards to the civil government, no, the same could be said to our kids, right? Do you want, uh, do what I have taught you, what your, what your father and mother have commanded you, and you'll have praise from them instead of pain. We see what happens to rebels. 
We see what happens even to the subtle variety of rebels who spend their lives invested in political schemes and desperately trying to stay relevant in the public eye. They use government authority to gain personal authority. This is rebellion, and rebels fall hard. One day they're here, the next they're not. They seek glory by seeking power that God gave to somebody else. Those who begrudge this reality, who chafe against it, and who seek to overthrow what God has put in place, die either politically embarrassing or otherwise violent deaths. God tells us that we are to honor our rulers, not because of some dignity in their person, though God grant us dignified rulers, and he has, but no, rather because of the dignity of the power they wield and who gave it to them. God gave them this power. They have the power to kill. God tells them how to use it. He tells them to use it. They have duties, and you have duties. Your first duty and foremost is to consider and acknowledge what God has instituted and to believe that it is for your good. Our 1941 catechism, the one that I've been teaching the kids, speaks of our duties towards civil government by titling the section of subjects. Our updated catechism says of citizens. I, I approve of the update. To call ourselves subjects sounds almost derogatory, doesn't it? I'm no peasant, right? You are no serf. We are more than subjects who owe abject obedience to our rulers, right? After all, our rulers are subject to, they are subject to the Constitution of the United States of America, and their power is checked and balanced by two other branches of government, and ultimately that checking and balancing and election to authority is derived from our free choice in our election process, right? Thomas Jefferson brilliantly wrote that they govern by the consent of the government. As Abraham Lincoln famously summed that up or expanded it, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. But is this true? Does the government need our consent to govern? From what we have heard from the Bible this evening, I don't see any hint of that, really. I see God telling us explicitly to be subject. That's what makes you a subject when you are subject, or whether you want to be or not, I suppose. I hear, I hear God telling us to obey, God telling us to honor, and to render it to people who are extremely unworthy as to the Lord. I don't see anything from God about if you're okay with that, if you consent. And yet, to be clear, Thomas Jefferson, another wise heathen, by the way, didn't mean it that way. A republic, if you can keep it, as Ben Franklin called our nation, does not translate to your president, your governor, your senator, if you want them. No, not at all. But, but where then, or how then, do we justify this claim that our rulers rule by our consent? Well, in answering this question, we consider also one hint in our scripture lessons. I'll just tell you, it's what Jesus said that most certainly does shed light on this and renders it true in at least one sense. We'll get there soon. The purpose of the government is to rule individuals, 
to rule you, singular. Those to whom God punished God himself by whatever means, whether by election or conquest or by royal birth, those to whom God has given authority to rule are to rule individuals. And an individual's first duty is to God, who made him. It is a sin to consent to the government that requires you to disobey God. Obviously, the Sanhedrin were wrong in Acts 4 to forbid Peter and John to preach in Jesus' name, and they asked the really rhetorical or obviously answered question whether they thought it was better to listen to God or to them. So, regardless, I mean, obviously they were wrong. And so is any other ruler who commands such wickedness. But, but more than that, those who obey the government, when the government tells them to do what is wrong, even if they're just doing their job, ma'am, they do wrong. They're not allowed to obey the government that requires them to sin against their neighbor. They sin against God and they sin against you when they take no stock in whether the government is requiring them to do right or wrong. Obedience to God and love for neighbor come before obedience to the civil authorities. In fact, the civil authorities exist precisely to promote your obedience to God and your love for neighbor. The purpose of the government is to rule individuals. It does this by honoring God. And the governing authorities do this by honoring what God honors. The chief thing, therefore, that the government must honor is the church, since they get their authority from the God who teaches us here. They are not only to permit us to worship, but a government that does not promote the true preaching of the word in some way. And in America, it's a little tough because of the, because of the First Amendment. But a government that doesn't promote the pure preaching of the gospel does wrong. The second chief thing is the home, since they derive their authority to govern from the authority that God gives fathers and mothers. Government does not have absolute power. Their power is conditioned by God. The context whereby God conditions their power is in the church, in the home. The government may not undermine the church or the home. Their power is conditioned by God in this way, and it is not to undermine your duty to God or your children's duty to you. It is to support it. When the government violates this, you're not required or even permitted to consent. And in that sense, in that sense, they derive their just authority to govern from your consent, but only insofar as you recognize your first and chief duty to God and to love your neighbor. Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Your children are not Caesar's. They're God's. God gave them to you. You are to teach them to honor God to honor the authority he gave you and to honor the authority of the civil government. You teach them to do all of this by teaching them the gospel. See how Jesus honored all these. 
See how he submitted even to wicked rulers in order to bear your sin. See what cross he bore. And add to that the indignity that he knew more crystal clearly than you have ever known anything that annoyed you how unjust it was for this kangaroo court to kill him. And I think that's what hurts us the most too, the injustice of it, the chutzpah of those who are tyrants. But this too we must bear. God knows who it is to whom he gives authority. Just like God knows why it is he sends any other cross upon you. It isn't to punish you, although it most certainly is to punish real sins that this nation commits. Rather, it is to chasten you. It is to teach you and drive you to God's word. It is to compel you to pray for your enemies and to pray for yourself and your children. The same crosses that a father or mother must put on his children, the same crosses that God puts on all of his children, are to drive you to humble yourself and trust in Jesus. So let us reflect when the time comes, and that time is here, when we have to put up with wicked rulers and we see the injustice of it. We see that our rulers are not worthy of the dignity of their office. Yeah, yeah, nothing new. But God knows who rules you. And you must know that this is not a cross that Caesar puts on you. It's a cross that God puts on you. And as you seek that peace which the world cannot give, learn not to expect it to. Learn to seek that peace where you bear your cross and trust in God. Just as we fathers and mothers know best what to deny our children and what to impose on them, because we love them, at least we do our best. So much more in God knows. He does his best, and his best is perfect. It's perfect. He is always doing his best for you. If the, if the best he does for you is a heavy burden by way of bad rulers, it is God showing tremendous love to you. Because he does not lay a cross on you without driving you to prayer and to the power of prayer, which is his holy word. So learn to mark God's wondrous dealing with the people that he loves. When his chastening hand they're feeling then their faith the strongest proves. God is nigh and notes their tears. Though he answers not, he hears. Pray with faith, for though he try you, no good thing can God deny. In Jesus' name, amen.